You're listening to The Homeschool Dropout. I'm your host, Mike Roberts. Let's talk about bridging the gap between homeschool and the professional world. Okay, listeners, here we are with another episode of The Homeschool Dropouts. I actually today am recording in my friend's closet. So I hope the audio comes through well. I'm on the road. I'm in Seattle, so I'm not at home. So a little bit different setting for me. I hope it works out. We have an unconventional guest. That's kind of how I'm framing things today. We have Jordan Manley on with us. Jordan, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for asking me on. Jordan, I spoke probably about not quite a week ago, and I really, really like Jordan's story. It's very unique. I think it's very personally driven, interest driven, and very outside of what would be expected, I think, for education and also for career growth and kind of like that professional space. So why don't we just kind of dive right into it, Jordan? You are out on the East Coast. You're in New York. Give listeners a background to your homeschooling journey. Sure. So I grew up in Southern California. I'm the oldest of five kids. And I went to regular public elementary school when I was kindergarten age. And then around second grade, of course, I don't remember this much. My mom tells the story of coming to my class and seeing my papers covered in drawings. I'm sure very bad ones. I've never been a good artist. And asking the teacher what was up with that. And the teacher would say like, yeah, he just doesn't pay attention. And I think I maybe was just bored. So that prompted, I think that I see that as sort of an event that kicked off a big education journey for my parents in terms of exploring how to educate their kids. So the next step for me was a private Cardin school, which and there's still Cardin schools around. It's a Cardin? Yeah, it's a curriculum made by a woman named May Cardin, I think hmm. in the 20s or 30s or 40s, somewhere around there in the in that time frame. And she went on to start a chain of schools. And I just happened to look the other day out of curiosity, they still have a nonprofit organization that will help you set up schools and wow. do that curriculum if you want. Anyway, it was much more rigorous. I went into that class um, much more challenged than I had been in elementary school and loving it. And we did that for second and part of third grade or maybe till the end of third grade. And then it wasn't financially feasible for me to continue there. So I went to a charter school after that for a little bit when I think charter schools are still fairly rare. This would have been like 94, maybe something around there, 1994. And then my mom got the idea to homeschool. So I'm pretty sure that started when I was homesick for a few days. And she's like, well, you seem like you're not that sick. What if we just do some school? I was like, okay, sure. And that started one year of homeschooling from middle of fourth grade to the middle of fifth grade. So wait, you got sick and your mom said, oh, let's just kind of like learn on the side. Then all of a sudden you're homeschooled for a year. Yeah. She's like, okay, well, how about just stay home today? How about stay home the next day? How about stay home the next day? I just kept staying home and being homeschooled. She's a real one. Yeah. I, you know, she had, let's see, I probably had just two siblings. Then my fourth sibling is 10 years younger than me. So I was probably nine and she was probably pregnant actually with my fourth brother. I'm sorry, my third brother. And so, yeah, I just stayed home and we did homeschool and she was figuring it out and I was enjoying it. I had a couple other friends who were homeschooled. So we all would be done at maybe two in the afternoon or one in the afternoon and get together and play. And yeah, I did that till the middle of fifth grade. And then I went back to public school, actually the exact same public school where I'd gone to kindergarten to finish out fifth grade. And that was, it was great. I had a really wonderful public school teacher. I've had, I think, good and bad experiences in all of these places. And then came big, scary middle school, which I think for my parents at that time was a massively corrupting influence on their whatever I was, 12, whatever, six years are 12 years old, I think. So back to homeschool for two more years. It was 
wonderful in many ways. I'm sure we can get into this more, but I'm a very social person. It was challenging to not be in as robust of a social situation. At the end of seventh grade, my parents brought up the possibility of me just going straight to high school, or maybe I was agitating for it because I had some friends that were going from homeschool into high school. So I went into the local public high school one year early, and I did three years of high school before I dropped out. And I, I left high school to pursue some other adventures that were educational as well. But you legitimately dropped out of high school. The podcast is called The Homeschool Dropout. And I, I did air quotes drop out of high school, but you truly, you were 16 or 17 where you left home and went to like a, a liberal arts college. You left college. Yes. So, right. So I was, I just turned 16 that summer. I went to what was trying to be a liberal arts college, but it was an unaccredited college in Utah. So I moved away from my family and I really enjoyed, it was a really enriching opportunity. It did not result in anything that we would call college credits. And I didn't graduate even from the fake college that I went to. So I, I didn't properly finish high school or really middle. You know, I do think I got my diploma from fifth grade. So I think I have that hey. to stand on. Okay, you have credentials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I was um, I was actually probably the top of my class in fifth grade, honestly. If there was a valid Victorian, that was probably, I was at least in the running. I, I hope you have it like framed up on your wall, like all the other <laughs> lettered I degrees. I, I wonder if it is somewhere in my parents' garage because I would <laughs> so happily hang it up and yeah. uh, show it off. Yeah, no, I, I am at my friend's place right now and he's got a lot of letters behind his name. He studied chemical engineering as undergrad and then he got a master's in chemi. And then he's getting his MD, PhD. And I'm like, that's really cool. That's impressive. And I don't know. I, I think there's something really special about having your fifth grade diploma up on the wall. That's uh, would be, it would be good. I, I should, yeah. should go, I should go get my transcript yeah. and everything from the elementary I, school. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. Well, let's kind of go into those years there. You had, it sounds a little bit like my experience is very kind of smorgasbord, hodgepodge, you touched a lot of different educational approaches. I'm curious what your your kid brain, like what was young Jordan thinking? How were you experiencing all that transition and movement in those very impressionable years? I don't remember any of it negatively. And I, I don't remember any of like feeling, oh, I have to leave here and go here now or anything like that. We always lived in the same town. Okay. I always had pretty much access to the same friends, at least outside of school. My the biggest thing that I struggled with was I liked I still do like to be around a lot of people a lot of the time and so homeschooling specifically where I'd be home with my mom and my siblings was socially challenging for me where I just wanted to be talking collaborating working with more people mm. and whatever just socializing so every time I went from homeschool say back to fifth grade or then homeschool into high school it was just like the world opened up socially in such a wonderful way to me. And I, most of that was also pretty academically good in, in those public school settings. But I, I miss the, the control I had, maybe not control. I guess my mom had the control, but you know, of course I had a lot more flexibility in homeschool to study what I wanted and move at a, a pace that felt good to me. How much do you feel like those movements were your own choice, your interest kind of driving, saying, I'm going to homeschool these years, I'm going to go back to public school. What was the trade-off, I guess, between your parents kind of encouraging direction and then you making choices? That's a great question. Well, I mentioned leaving that private school. I don't think my parents nor I really wanted that. It just wasn't financially feasible. And I, I don't remember it very well, but I'm sure I felt at least mildly disappointed at, mm. that, at that point. The biggest challenge was when I was in middle school was a time that my parents were becoming more observant in the religion we were raised in. And it wasn't 
being homeschooled per se, that was the biggest challenge for me. But around that time, I was very involved in a theater group, a community theater group who would do productions on Sundays a few times a year. And there arose a challenge in our family where my parents were not, they would probably at that time have phrased it as they would give me the choice. I'm not sure they would, they probably would see that differently now. I certainly don't see it that way looking now. I see I was I was not really given a choice, even if only in the most theoretical sense was I given a choice about participating there. And so I, my, my parents wanting to be, I think, very faith promoting, encouraged me to write a letter to the director of this theater company to try and prevail upon them for some change or special consideration. None was given. And I was uh, not able to participate in those next several years of theater productions with that company. And that really turned my social world upside down. You know, it was a, a major outlet of expression and creativity for me. It was where I had the warmest and most robust friendships. And so being cut off from that was pretty, pretty traumatizing probably for me as a, as a uh, I don't know, 11, 12, and just turning 13 year old. And then largely I reunited with a lot of those people. We all went to high school together or most of us went to high school together. And in high school, we didn't do shows on Sunday. So it was not a problem. So that doesn't directly, it wasn't directly the homeschooling. Probably would have been alleviated if I was in school with a lot of those kids, but because I wasn't in school with them and I wasn't participating in the, the theater company, it was very challenging for me. Interesting. I, I have several questions. Where I'd like to start is, do you feel like at that age you had the ability to kind of articulate those needs as a kid? I don't know. It's so hard, even as an adult, to understand yourself and know what your needs are and know what kind of, you know, but as a, as a kid, I was not able to articulate that. And so the reason I'm asking is, Parents who are homeschooling, if they have a child that has those social needs, but the child can't express that, I don't know. What Do you see where I'm kind of going with this? Like, how, do you think you could have expressed that? Did you express it? What did it look like? So perhaps I could just illustrate it with a story. I auditioned for one of these plays, attaching a letter to my application or whatever you give them. I, I, I don't know. It's not a resume. It's like a headshot or something. Explaining that I would not be willing to perform on Sundays, given my religious beliefs and commitments, which honestly, at that point, were very much superimposed on me by my parents, and hoping that I could still be considered for a, some part in the show. Anyways, I wasn't given a part, and a good friend and her mom called me. So I, I was, I would have been 11, I think, at this point. Okay. They called me probably a week later to just say, you know, they were sorry that how things had worked out, and they had nothing to do with the decision making. They just generally felt sorry. So I, I yeah, I did my best to keep a stiff upper lip during the call. But as soon as I hung up the phone, you know, I was just uh, like bawling, like just, sure. just devastated. So even if I couldn't express it in my words, certainly it was expressed through my emotions. I probably expressed it to some degree through my words as well. And my, you know, my parents were not at a place where they were ready to be flexible to, to, I don't know, perhaps give more weight to my, you know, I don't know, my, my emotions in that moment or what was valuable to me as a kid. And instead at that point prioritized their adherence to religion. I will hasten to say that I think I think both and certainly one of my my parents feels deep regret over this time period and and phase of life. So it's it's a, it's a long, I guess, complicated story from there. But in terms of what I was expressing, I think it was very clear what I was expressing, if if not through anything else than my my tears and being despondent. So during this time you were being homeschooled, you had this outlet in theater, that door was closed to you through religious convictions, and then you continued to be homeschooled for like the next year or two? Yeah, for the next two years after that. Mm -hmm. And you just got through it? Like, how did you find social release and outlet and connection? Yeah, I had a small group of guy friends that I became very close with in those years. We did a lot of playing board games and strategy games and 
all kinds of outdoor stuff and riding our bikes and a lot of strategy games, honestly, from 11 to 12, I played a lot of different, really kind of cerebral strategy games that we all loved it. It was good. It wasn't like it was such a dark, it wasn't like an endless dark tunnel oh, okay, in my okay. life. I was just cut off. You know, if you, if you ask me what I like more music or strategy games, I'll tell you I like music a heck of a lot more, but I still sit down to play games today. I, I do enjoy it. I found other things that I enjoyed that I suppose were not threatening, I think, to my parents' value system in that time and still made me. Childhood is challenging on its own. And I do think I've mentioned this in several, several episodes. I do feel that parents have a prerogative and it is their part of their role to impart their values to their children. And I don't know, it's just unfortunate. You don't choose your childhood. There's so much in your childhood that you don't choose, but you do choose your response eventually in your adulthood. And so I think it's helpful for parents who are looking at homeschooling or are homeschooling to be very in tune to their child's needs. And I am a big advocate for homeschooling. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I think there's so much there. And I'm not an absolutist. I'm not saying that if you don't homeschool, then XYZ corruption, your child will see the world and like fall away. I don't know. I think those are very individual choices. I think there's a lot in adulthood that every person faces when they look back at their childhood. But yeah, if you're feeling that a child, a student needs to be in the public system, I just feel like that should happen, you know, or, or find those outlets and really go for them because it's such an important part of your development. I agree. And I feel like that story is sad. It was a sad chapter of my childhood, but of course I had a wonderful parents. I still have wonderful parents. I had a wonderful childhood. I really want to get into your, your current career, if not just for like selfish reasons, because I'm very fascinated. I guess I can feel myself kind of tempering my excitement because just for listeners, the last time I talked to Jordan, you kind of gave me like some career insecurity. <laughs> I was like, do I need to quit my job and do what Jordan's doing? I'm not there, but I, I'm just very fascinated by what you're doing. So let's talk about that move from you dropped out of high school, you moved across states, you start going to this college and you were a kid. How is that experience? Is that, I guess, how do you interpret and value that experience now in your adulthood? Yeah. So, okay. So I was 16 and I'm moving away to, to the hair, we can definitely do air quotes, college. <laughs> and college, in this case, is a group of maybe 30 students with a, about a professor and a half, a full-time professor and a part-time professor, doing a lot of reading, writing, and, and discussion. And I love all of those things. I didn't feel particularly insecure, the fact that I was, I don't know, probably three to five years younger than everybody there and, and more than that in some cases. And uh, yeah, it didn't hold me back. I think maybe the first two days I was like, oh, everybody's here kind of old. And then I was pretty quickly, I was like, yeah, I can hang with the, I can hang with the best of them. If, if all we're doing is reading and writing and talking, I can do that pretty well. So I loved it. I got into school and got to do a lot of reading and writing. And I was still a sort of academically unruly student. I didn't want to, often didn't want to adhere to curriculum and things like that. I would just kind of go off on my own. But I made such great use of that time. I read hundreds of books. I wrote a bunch of essays and stories that I think set a great foundation for me to be a stronger communicator. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, I think I had a couple of things published at that time too. Nothing, just in some small regional publications. But for me as a, oh, you know what? And then I was a finalist. I started writing plays. So I was in Cedar City and I went over to, I was not a student there, but I went over to the University of Southern Utah, which I think is at college there. And I went to the theater department with a couple of plays that I had written. And I said, listen, I wrote these plays. I need someone to produce them. And um, they did it. So that was great. They produced you're two kidding. of my plays over there. No, I'm not kidding at all. It was great. Wait, wait, wait. Um, so you're a teen writing plays and you pitch it to like the theater department and they produce it. 
Yeah, 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 they did. That's they, gonna they, feel they, good as a teenager. Yeah, that's a huge. So win. funny when I when I say these things, thinking back, like I'm sure I felt good about it at the time, but I know a couple seventeen year olds today, and I cannot imagine a seventeen year old doing this. I really like think. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, yeah, okay, I got to find someone to do these plays, and there's the, that's I guess that's them going over there to talk to them. Yeah, it worked out great. So my family came up and watched. There was a, a like a full length two hour show, and then one was shorter. My family came and watched those on those different occasions, which of course was was good fun. And man, I just realized we, I, I'm going to have to do some abridging here because otherwise we're going to be here for a long okay. time. I can always edit it out. So you just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that was, that was what I did during that time though. Do you have any, anything else you want to talk about as far as George? Um, or... Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess before we kind of move on from your full educational experience, if there were things that really shine for you and stand out in your period of grade school, homeschooling, charter school, and I'm going to kind of bundle your your early entrance into college into a bucket because you were part of that high school age. What did you love about those times? What were what are kind of your fond memories there and why? I just loved to read from the very beginning. Homeschool is just a just a canvas on which you could read and write whatever you want. And in fact, my math education was pretty deficient. My mother does not excel at math. I think she'll be fine with me saying that. She is a <laughs> wonderfully gifted writer and communicator. And of course, our homeschooling was imbued with all of her ability and talent in that area. And we did Saxon like a lot of other oh my homeschoolers. And my math was just, okay, what chapter are you on today? And go do it. And uh, try not to look in the back of the book for the answers. So I did that and I learned what I, I mean, I went into high school at 13 and was in algebra, algebra one, whatever, like the pre-algebra. So I think it wasn't so deficient. I was able to keep up and do fine. Then moving into college, you know, I didn't think of it until probably a year into college, but I had had some excellent writing teachers in high school and my mom had always been a very excellent writing teacher and actually my dad too. So I went into college writing pretty well. And seeing many of my schoolmates not writing very well. In fact, I would, I, I think I had maybe somewhat of a reputation for probably being overly critical. You know what? Maybe I was being sufficiently critical of some of my schoolmates' writing. And that was, anyway, that was, uh, it was just great for that. It's for, for all the reading, all the writing that I did, and then all the reading and writing I did in those two years of big college, they were great. The reading and writing was very real, even if the college was fake. <laughs> Something that I've kind of used to frame my writing, something my mom would always say growing up was, you will always write how you read. And so if you're reading like rich, deep, complex, you know, literature, you're probably going to write like that. And so your writing is going to reflect your reading. And so I think that's a good metric as to what kind of writer do I want to be? If you want to write fantasy, you read fantasy. If you want to write like, I don't know, some like John Locke, Second Treaties, you read John Locke's Second Treaties, right? And so, and I know at your fake college, <laughs> you guys were reading some tough, tough material. It was very dense and it was very aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I say fake, I, I certainly only mean fake in the sense that it wasn't accredited by whoever is in the world thinking they can accredit colleges. It was very, <laughs> it was very real in terms of the intellectual rigor and the academic discipline. So it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then what after? I know last time we spoke, you went out to New York and you've been there ever since. Yeah, I moved to New York and this is where uh, if you're a concerned parent, you'll probably be like, definitely should have stayed in homeschool. Listen to all the things he did after this. So I <laughs> imagine I'm, I moved to New York. I lived here for a summer when I was 18 and then moved back when I was 21. I have no high school diploma. I have no college degree. I have really no marketable skills. I didn't know anybody. I just wanted to live in New York 
So I came with, with, I don't know, a thousand dollars and a, oh my a dream, my heart rate. And yeah. And my parents supported me in the sense that they hugged me before I left and wished me well, but they had four small kids at home and yeah, not, you know, they were not in a position to support me financially or anything else, which I will forever be grateful for that. I largely had to make things work on my own. Out of curiosity, where did you move to first when you first went out? So I had served a mission for my church at that time. Okay. And with one of the first missionaries I met, I told him, I came from New York. I'm going back to New York as soon as I finish this mission. He's like, okay, great. My family lives there. You can stay with them. So I took him up on that two years later. And they uh, they had a very, very full house. And they were the only thing bigger was their heart, I guess, to let me in because the house was already so full of siblings and cousins and oh my goodness, family members who were down and out. And so they let me crash with them for a bit. And then I found a living room for rent in Spanish Harlem with a ranger off the internet and I moved in there. Wow. Okay. Spanish Harlem. So you're way up north. You're in like the upper end of Manhattan. Yeah, it was on 109th street. It was. Okay. Not too bad. No, it's fine. It okay. was New York. It's way better than, <laughs> better than being 3000 miles away in California. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so you're out there. So I, I, yeah, I, I lived with him for six weeks though. And before I couldn't pay rent. So I went to him and I said, all right, keep my deposit. I'm moving out. I'm not sure where I'm going, but I, I got to go somewhere else. I had taken a job as a telemarketer and I was terrible at that. So I quit that job and started looking around for what I was going to do next. And I found a listing online that for, let's see, it's to be a personal assistant and it came with a free apartment. So I called on that job and they said, okay, we'll interview you, but you have to go see the apartment first. And if you've ever even tried to stay in New York, you know, it's extremely expensive to live anywhere. So if you have to see the apartment first, you really have to wonder what is the matter with that apartment because yeah. anyone would take a free apartment or an apartment included with a job. So I go to the apartment and it turns out it's in decommissioned laundry room in the basement of a very inexpensive drug rehab. And by inexpensive, I mean they're bringing in homeless people. So it was not an apartment. There was no kitchen. There was no bathroom. It really was just like a room coming out of the wall with no washer or dryer. Oh there my anymore. Gosh. It was probably about 120 square feet. Oh my gosh. And uh, had some holes in the ceiling, but I mean, it was that or go home for me. So I took, took it, it and oh yeah, I, I took it. I, I, w I went to interview with the, the guy who I'd be working for after that. And he was a very gruff guy. I still think he's a nice guy, but very, very gruff. Said, listen, first question is, listen, you smoke cigarettes? I said, no, I, I don't. All right. All right. You smoke pot? I said, no, but you know what? I think I can actually cut this line of questioning. I just want to let you know, I just got back from being a Mormon missionary in Brazil. He's like, that's amazing. I love Mormons. They work so hard and they're so honest. You're hired. I took that job and I worked for him for about a year living in that drug oh, rehab. Oh, wait, you were his personal assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked wow. for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was my first year in New York. I lived hand to mouth and did whatever I needed to do. And then I did a lot of other things, most of which didn't work out. But the thing I did for the next bunch of years is I started sneaking people into fashion shows. And I took people to fashion shows in New York and some other cities. And uh, that is a, probably a long story for another day. I certainly gave my parents some heartburn, I'm sure, about what their son was doing <laughs> in New York. And I'm sure they questioned some of their educational choices of us as, as we grew up, given where I, the trajectory I was on. You can imagine your friend comes to you and they're like, yeah. My daughter just graduated from Brown. She's going off to be an investment banker. Ooh. My son's just got accepted to medical yeah. school. And my parents are like, our son just snuck people into Donna Karen's show. We're so proud. Mm. <laughs> We're so proud. Yeah. Um, so 
Eventually, I did legitimize that business for a little while, but not long. And then I did some other things. And finally, around 29, I had been working in retail for about a year, and I started to teach myself to code. And at 30, I got my first office job as a software engineer, and I did that for about five years. And then a couple of years ago, I went to work for a nonprofit where I teach software engineering. And separately from my job, I created some software for schools to use to track learners. So specifically software engineering learners. So it's a software that any person can use if they're sort of learning to code on their own or they want to practice and get better. And then if you're a school and you want to track, you know, and any number of students and make sure that they're moving towards being ready for a job, it will help you do that as well. I really want to get into your coding experience for many reasons, but the question I'm having, how much do you connect your educational experience when you're young to your career choices when you're older? Do you see a connection there or am I kind of just like forcing, you know, a connection that doesn't exist? No, I, I think they're connected. They're both very unconventional and scattered. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My So my mom graduated college and my dad has a master's degree. And you might think that their oldest son would at least have one degree, maybe even just a high school diploma, anything, anything. Well, you have your fifth grade. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Don't forget. But my you know, one thing I I absorbed growing up was that my dad, at least, yeah, my dad had some student debt and it was, I felt it as a burden. Even as a kid, I could perceive that it was not regarded as a, a valuable thing. I think there's, my, my dad loves his profession and it's a profession that you cannot be practicing without a master's degree. So I knew that as well, but it, it sort of would always, I felt it on both sides of the scale, like, oh, this debt is a stressor in our family. It's a financial stressor. However, my, my dad loves what he does, which is great. And uh, my mom, I'm sure, was better, better suited to homeschool us, given that she had a degree, though I don't know how directly uh, relevant it was. So when I was sort of in high school, I didn't think of college as an unallied allied good. I thought of it as something, maybe I want to do that, maybe not. I'm not really sure. I don't like debt. I don't want to be like the way I grew up and have this kind of debt hanging around for years and years. As I became an adult, I just wasn't really focused on getting any kind of degree or qualifying myself for any kind of profession. I was more creative, very artistic, very just open to adventure and just see what happens. And I had a lot of adventures all through my life. I think I still do. I think around 30, though, I was like, I maybe should get a profession going here. And then that's, you know, it eventually became software engineering. Yeah, I'm sensing and correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously there's so many factors in our lives that contribute to the decisions that we make. But I do feel like kind of the the fact that your family and you were open to an unconventional education, and then that kind of led to an unconventional adulthood. But I think tying a lot together is you have a strong sense of self. That's not what I want to do. I want to go to this small liberal arts college in central Utah. I want to move out to New York and just make it work. You know, even though there is tremendous pressure, tremendous social movement, tremendous like keeping up with the Joneses saying college is the path. And like, these are the ages you do these things and you will fall behind, you're late, or like, you know, dinner parties. But through it all, you've maintained, I don't know you tremendously well, I, I actually barely know you, but I feel like you had a sense of self through it all. Like, well, that's not what Jordan wants. You know, I'm going to do what I want. But would you say that you feel that? Yeah, I don't know how much one feels that. I, I think your perception is correct. Maybe it seems like a hard thing to be self-aware of. But <laughs> as I get older, I think I am more and more aware of that. For me, when I was younger, I was just like, yeah, of course, I'm going to do that. Or of course, I'm not going to do that or whatever. Of course, I'm going to yeah. do this thing in front of me. That seems exciting. I have heard my my parents both say, though, 
I don't want to misparaphrase, but essentially they feel that their proudest accomplishment as, as parents has been turning out five children with a very strong sense of self. And I, I would agree that my I am not unique among my siblings in that way. Yeah, I think it's right though. I think, yeah, sure. Just going to yeah. do what I want to do. I mean, I love it. I, I would agree as well. I, I know my my parents have expressed almost frustration in the fact that their kids are so individual. And we often, I think we do it to varying degrees of respect, but we do challenge. I challenge my parents on things. We're very unique thinkers and very individual thinkers. And that's kind of turned into, I think my mom gets frustrated because she feels strongly about something. She used to just be able to transmit that value. And now I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I'll challenge her on things. But yeah, I, I definitely, I suppose what I'm saying is I can identify and almost aspire to that sense of self. I do think I kind of, at different periods of my life, got caught up in this is when you are supposed to go to college. This is when you're supposed to get your master's. And so I don't dislike my life, but I am evaluating my motives right now in our conversation. Yeah, I just want to say, if you are like that, I, you, anyone, certainly I had times when I experienced self-doubt. Who does not? I just want to let you know, it's like, if you're in America, you're going to be fine. Like we're in such a rich country. It's like impossible not to do well here. Hmm. As long as you're going to work hard and keep striving, you're in a safe, well-run, very, very prosperous country. If you're if you even halfway together, you're just going to do fine. I'm in a great place. I don't live in a living room anymore. I like own several pieces of real estate. I, I used to rent a living room. Now I own several pieces of real estate. I have, I host my whole family, my whole family, not, not just my immediate family, my whole extended family has come out to stay with me upstate in New York and like at multiple properties. I mean, it works out great. It's going to be fine. Just got to like, <laughs> don't go into debt, have your adventures. And at some point you need to save some money and invest and it, going to be fine. I don't have, I still don't have any degree. I still don't have a GED. I still don't have anything. My employer loves me. I think maybe they'll listen to this and be like, no, we don't. <laughs> sure. Okay. No, my, my employer loves me. My students love me. I do everything I can, of course, to, to help them. Like it works out okay. So I just would tell anyone you shouldn't worry about it too much. Do the thing that's in front of you, do it as well as you can. And it's good. It's going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to be okay. But I think you highlight important things. You do have to work. You have to hustle. You have to try. You have to take risks. You have to you know, take calculated risks. It is not without effort. I don't think you can go through life without those credentials, those check marks do help and you don't need them. But either way, you need to work. You need to build your own life for yourself. And so I, yeah, I think that's great. Advice. Yes, I, I just want to echo that. If anything I said sounds like you don't have to work. What I'm saying is your work will pay off so well because of the wonderful country and environment that we're in, in <laughs> even in a tougher economic climate, not that you simply somehow can't work and get those things, but rather as long as you're working, even if you're not doing things on a timeline that others might be doing it or in just the fashion that others are doing it, you absolutely can just do just as well or, or better. <laughs> I love it. I think it's very encouraging. Let's talk about your work now. You're working as a software engineer. I want to highlight your, I don't know if it's your business, but you've written software, uh, as you mentioned, for coding classes. So what is that? Can I point listeners to that and give kind of the pitch there? Sure. It's called CodeTrack. You can find it at www.codetrack.dev, D-E-V. It came out of initially my work in tracking many students and trying, let me actually step back. When I was learning to be a software engineer, of course, I didn't, you know, think, do I have to go to school? Do I have to go to a boot camp? I didn't have any money. Again, <laughs> persistent theme of my 20s. I didn't have any money. <laughs> so I couldn't really afford, I couldn't afford to stop working. I couldn't afford to go to boot camp. So I just kept Googling and learning and reading everything that I could. And eventually 
I felt like I could probably maybe get an interview and maybe get a job. And eventually that worked out, which is great. I wanted to create some idea of a path that people can follow. So ProTrack will start you off on some very easy problems and it will eventually help you get set up as you work through putting together a project. And overall, it creates a nice profile of you. So it almost can take the place of a resume. If you're someone like me that didn't have anything good to put on their resume, you could show, hey, look, these are all the different things I've done oh, that CodeTrack nice. has kept track of and and likely get an employer to see you as more qualified than than they would otherwise. Not that you are qualified, but you don't have a resume or some kind of credential, something like that. So I use it with my students. I use it with all kinds of people. I teach a free class every Saturday. If you sign up for CodeTrack, you can come to my class and we'll do some coding together. If you are homeschooling, it can certainly be a resource for you if you have a probably high school age kid that's interested in coding or middle school age kid that's interested in coding can be a good thing for that too. Okay, so is that the demographic you target? Are you working with college kids or high school? Yeah, I primarily target colleges and boot camps that want to use it, but it is free for any individual who just wants to sign up and use it, code, keep track of their code, everything like that. I love that. I, I will tell listeners I have had on my mind, when you're an engineer, you become like a highly valuable engineer if you can do some coding. And then I, I also just love the, I get such an, an adrenaline rush when my code works. And so I have been looking for something and keeping my eyes open. So I'll definitely be checking this out. I hope listeners check it out. I think that's, it's a great way, Jordan, that you have seen a need and you've met a need in the market and then it's free. I think that's, that's really great. I'll link to that in my show notes page. And then I'll also point to that in the episode. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple iTunes, if you just go into the episode, you can find the link and I'll take you right to codetrack.dev. If anyone wants to reach out to me, you can get me at jordan at codetrack.dev. So if you do have any trouble signing up or you just want to reach out, please feel free to send me an email there. J-O-R-D-A-N at codetrack.dev. Okay. I really appreciate your time, Jordan. I think we went a little bit over, but I personally find your story very exciting, compelling. I like people who have kind of bucked the crowd and set their own course. There are so many ways to build a good life. Yep. I will go back to that same thing. It's going to be fine. Don't go to college if you don't want to right now. It's going to be fine. Okay, Jordan, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good evening. Talk to you later. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy the homeschool dropout, the best way to support the show and increase its value to you and other homeschoolers is to subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So head there now and we'll see you next week.